Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I am your host for Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Carl Marlantis. He is the winner of the Washington State Book Award for his previous novel, Matterhorn. He was a Rhodes Scholar before serving as a Marine in Vietnam, where he was awarded the Navy Cross, the Bronze Star, two Navy Commendation Medals for Valor, two Purple Hearts, and ten Air Medals. His most recent novel, Deep River, is published by our friends at Atlantic Monthly Press, an imprint of Grove Atlantic. Carl, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. All right, um, <laughs> Carl, I want to take a step back for a minute and speak to you about your military experience. Uh, you are a Marine. You fought in Vietnam. You're a well-decorated war hero. Um, and you are also an outspoken critic of current war efforts and treatment of our veterans in the United States of America. This is, of course, all related to your writing in a deep fundamental way. Um, and I will pull a couple of quotes from Deep River in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask you to speak about your criticisms of current war efforts in this country. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, where do I start? I mean, the, the first thing is that I don't believe you can export democracy. What you can do is make a shining example. And I think that we're, we're pursuing things very crazily, I mean, ill-conceived. If we think we can go over and tell somebody that, well, you're gonna have to be a Democrat, just like us, watch our Congress, see how it works, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, I mean, it's take out the beam in your own eye before you take out the moat in your brother's eye. And I think it's a classic what we're making a mistake. The other thing that we're making a serious mistake about is that we're taking 18 and 19 year olds who are ideal warriors. I mean, I would never want to go to war without 18 and 19 year olds. If you say take the hill, they'll take it. They, they'll do it without eating food. They'll do it without water. I mean, they're amazing. But we're putting them into situations where police who are ideally 40 would have trouble. I mean, we're putting kids with automatic weapons into situations where they don't have a clue how to, how to sort it out. And I think it's a fundamental error that we're applying military pressure to places where actually it would, should be police work. I mean, if, if you're going in to sort of, quote, pacify a bad neighborhood, the police don't go in there and then leave. They're there all the time. So if we want to commit to something like that, then we're going to have to commit to putting police forces in there and we have to commit to being there f for a century. We're, we're simply fooling ourselves if we think we're going to do that. And I mean, I, I terribly criticize the fact that a lot of these kids are getting court-martialed because they make mistakes. Gosh. But the reason that those mistakes are being made is because they're being put in untenable positions. So um, all that adds up sort of the, 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 the fact that what are we doing trying to force democracy on people? We, we could easily help them, you know, schools, you know, education. There's lots of ways we could spend our money and then let them come to us in the sense that, that, oh, gosh, it'd be neat if we could be like them. Or, wow, you know, it'd be neat if women could be as free as the, in, in Afghanistan as they are in America instead of we're going to go there and, and upset the entire culture and then have people fighting us because it's too fast. It just doesn't work that way. And then again, like I said, nation building and, and putting people into these situations where you don't know who the enemy is. The enemy goes across the border and hides. Um, corrupt governments. 
you, you just kind of go like, this doesn't make any sense. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a critic. I'm not anti-war. I mean, I'm a Marine, and I mean, I'm, I'm no pacifist, believe me. If somebody wants to you know, try to take away government of, by, and for the people, I'll fight. And it's worth risking your life for People say, would you die for it? No, but I'd risk my life for it. That's a very big difference, <laughs> you know. Um, so I just think that we've been really wrong-headed, and it's dragging. I mean, here, do this math, and this is another criticism. We've spent five to seven trillion, I mean, you know, it's pretty, on these wars in the last 20 years, uh, you know, and those numbers are debated because it does, do you count pensions and, I mean, you know, but anyway. Let's just take the conservative number, $5 trillion. That's $5,000 billion. So I went on the Internet and I said, what's the 5,000th uh, largest town in America? It was a little town in Georgia, about 2,800 people. That meant to me that if you'd taken that $5 trillion over the last 20 years, every town in America bigger than 2,800 could have had a billion dollars. You don't think we couldn't have built some infrastructure, solved some school problems? Uh, you know, when you when you look at it in terms of what it, concretely, like I said, that little town could have had five, could have had a billion dollars. Then you go like, what are we doing with that money? So there, I just I just unloaded my entire political <laughs> philosophy, but that's what I feel about current wars. Thank you so much, Carl. That's what I was asking for. I appreciate yeah. your answer. Um, there are two quotes I want to pull, as I told you I would, and I would like to offer you the opportunity to talk about them one by one in whatever context you like. Uh, the first is, in this country, you steal $5 and you go to jail. You steal a railroad and you go to Congress. Can you talk about that quote, please? <laughs> yeah, that, that is, that's Aino, who, who is actually quoting someone else. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's not original. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is, in fact, uh, a cynical way of, of pointing out how privilege and class structure protects the privileged from crimes that poorer people get thrown in jail for. I mean, white-collar crime where you, uh, you know, you, you, like, for example, uh, the railroads were uh, basically there was a lot of corruption going on. Uh, deals made with the politicians because the government had just huge amounts of land uh, and then it was parceled out to, to companies. Uh, uh, how did they get it? <laughs> they didn't bid on it. <laughs> I mean, how did they get it, really? Well, they probably, you know, paid a few people off. Now, I have to go into the history of railroads. I don't, I don't know that much about it, but that's where that quote comes from. And uh, it's just simply a, a poor person's view that, uh, you know, you see people that don't pay any taxes at all, but it's legal. And you see somebody who's, you know, struggling to feed their family who doesn't pay their taxes, and they get thrown in jail. Wait a second, this guy doesn't pay his taxes, and, and he's a billionaire, and he doesn't go to jail, and this guy doesn't pay his taxes, and he doesn't make more than, you know, 20000 a year, and he goes to jail. Well, that's the point, you know. Somehow this is not right, and I think that... Ino's quote is just pointing that out. Thank you. And the second quote I would like to pull is from a few pages later and is as follows. Um, You're all fools, Roja said quietly. Roja. Contracts, the law, socialism, the good of the people, good men, 
bad men, she harumphed. It's all foolish talk to make you believe you are more powerful than you really are. The people with the real power give us all this socialist, capitalist, legal, moral nonsense while they do what they want. Would you like to talk about this quote, please, Carl? <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to have to be defending Rauha here. Rauha is a very tough lady, she's, and she's practical. I mean, she, she looks at the world f through the eyes of a practical person. And when she sees Aino talking about, you know, socialism pie in the sky, she just rolls her eyes because she sees that, that, that where the real work gets done is the nitty-gritty in the family, you know, getting the farm, uh, getting the logs cut. I mean, and, and this is, this is where, where it really happens. And she um, uh, also sees just what I was talking about, that um, you, can, you can have all these ideals but if you don't get in there and, and actually protect yourself, I mean, one of the examples is that uh, uh, Matty, who, who is this, her brother-in-law, uh, makes a deal with a, a crooked guy, and uh, it turns out that he, he stiffs him for the money that he's supposed to get on the logs. And Matty says, I've got a contract. And Rahul says, it's a piece of paper. You don't, you don't have any power because you can't hire a big city law firm. You can't hire people that can defend you. You can't hire accountants. If you are a small person, you don't have the advantages that the big person has. And this big person who's crooked has all those advantages. Well, we'll change the venue. Well, we'll do this. Well, we'll do that. And, and Rauha just said, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, well, I think she called it a piece of toilet paper. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But what she's pointing out is that if, you, if you're going to stake your family's welfare, on an ideal like that, uh, you're actually barking up the wrong tree. You need you need to also sort of well trust in God and tie your camel. Yeah, trust in the law. The law is very important. The law is generally works. I mean, I I don't think I can't come up with a better system, but it's a flawed system because it, it's stacked against poor people. Uh, so let's try and make that better. Um, uh, and I think that that uh, you know there's ways that you can protect people, labor, uh, through legislation that, that uh, has been attempted. I mean, the New Deal attempted it, then we sort of backtracked. And we have this in this country, I mean, again, what this book deals with is the two central characters, Axel and, and Aino, are almost, uh, what's the right word, uh, allegories, because Aino is for the collective. She's trying to, you know, Put in place the legislation that makes it good for the collective, makes it, makes it good for all the people, very idealistic. Axel is just the opposite. He doesn't want anything to do with big unions. He doesn't want anything to do with businesses, corporations. He wants his own fishing boat. And the two of them struggle, just like in our culture, between the collective and the individual, back and forth. Uh, you know, Roaring Twenties, New Deal, the uh, you know fifties, uh, uh, you know Eisenhower. Uh, along comes Johnson and and uh, the Great Society. Then we have Reagan. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just whoop, boop, boop, and hello. Both sides are right, and we have to learn how to compromise. These people learn how to love each other, and she's from a family that has wacky differences in in politics. I mean, she's got one brother that just wants to get rich. She has another brother that's a fundamental Christian, and she's a communist. They have Thanksgiving dinner together. And, and they just 
tolerate each other's political views. And uh, another, I'll get on my horse about this, is, is that what's happened in our country is that they had a tribe. We, we're tribal. I mean, I think it's in genetic. Our guys against your guys. That's genetic. That's what keeps, keeps our food supply in our, in our primitive brains. Uh, but what we identified with up till probably about 30 or 40 years ago even was families, extended families, one, work. I mean, people on the logging crews, and I can remember this, uh, their lives depend on each other. That's their tribe. And, and I can remember them, you know, make, making jokes about uh, one of the guys who was, in fact, just a crazy communist, you know, and another one who was, in fact, a Bible-thumping fundamentalist. They were on the same crew. They talked about it. They laughed about it. They shared Copenhagen snuff. I mean, because the, the umbrella of the larger tribe included the politics. Well, we've lost the larger tribe. So now the politics are becoming the tribes. And then you throw social media in where you don't even have to talk to someone from the other side. Then our natural genetic thing about my tribe against your tribe, and I do believe it's genetic. We have to get conscious about this. Now comes to the fore, and that's why I think why we're having all this trouble today because uh, uh, we're choosing tribes based on politics. It didn't used to be that way. We chose our tribes based on I'm an American or I'm, I'm, a, I'm from the Kosky family or I work for ABC Logging. Uh, that that's we're getting I don't know what the right word is we're categorizing ourselves differently and so our tribes are changing in a dangerous way tribal politics that's what you see in the Middle East the book and podcast is sponsored by Libro FM audiobooks Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Um, we have touched on the lumber industry just a little bit, but this is where the bulk of this novel takes place uh, amidst the lumber industry in the Pacific Northwest. Can you tell us about this industry during this era leading into World War One and during World War One? Sure. Um, it's a very interesting part of our history, which we don't tend to know much about. First of all, it was old growth forest. And, and when I was a kid, we were still logging old growth. The peak logging in my county, which is the very northwest county in Oregon, was in 1972. People think it was all gone way earlier. That wasn't. We were logging it straight. But unlike a, a normal, uh, I don't know what you call it, industrial uh, product uh, where you have a gradual tailing off, I mean, when the old growth was done, it was done. Boom. <laughs> nothing. You know, and so enormously disruptive. Yet these people were heroic. I mean, they're tiny people. They burned 16,000 calories a day. Ah, uh, you know, worked their tails off, and uh, that's heroism. But the result is ironic: no more old growth forest. So, so that's so when they came here, that's what they were looking at. 
the logging industry, like I said, there were a lot of young men footloose, and uh, if they got fed well, that was the that was the what was it called the uh, um, the basic wage as far as they were concerned was food, and the, the logging companies cheated, they colluded, and so they said we're not going to give anybody higher wages because we've all agreed to keep them low. But they had to compete in some ways for labor. They competed competed by having food, better food than the other logging camps. And uh, that, that, that was the primary labor force that cut this old growth. What happened uh, to break this cycle where they were basically exploited um, is that First World War came along and um, they needed spruce for airplanes. And spruce are big, big logs. And they grow just on the on the rainforest side of the Cascade Range, right along the coast mostly. The IWW made a, a serious uh, strategic error because they struck, and then they were immediately accused of being against America, against the war effort, and everything. Because the, what they thought is because the government was demanding so much wood that now would be the time to, to go on strike because the, the management, the owners would, would cave quickly because there was money to be made and they couldn't make it if, the, if no one was logging. Well, the owners fought tooth and nail. The IWW fought tooth and nail. It was a standstill. And General Pershing, who was in charge of the Army, sent a guy named Disk, D-I-S-Q-U-E, who was one of his staff favorites. He said, go out there and solve this problem because we need wood. You know, we need to build barracks and we need to build airplanes and we can't have these people squabbling over here. Talking about tribes, right? The bigger tribe was American effort. So what he did is he went out there and, and his first thought was he would just use the Army to start logging. Well, that was hopeless because logging is extremely dangerous. It takes enormous skill. And just putting some soldier from Iowa in there, it was just crazy. So then what he decided and Pershing decided is that they formed what they called the Spruce Division. Uh, it was actually part of the Signal Corps, oddly enough, I think some administrative reason. And they drafted loggers. But when they drafted the loggers into the Spruce Division, they got an eight-hour day. They got paid like a private in the Army, which was more than they were getting paid doing this enormously hard, dangerous work. It broke the back of the whole dispute between labor and management. And when the war was over, uh, the, uh, the Spruce Division, I mean, I can to this day, I, I know places where you can just see stuff that was just dropped. I mean, the war ended. They said, we're not logging anymore. And you can see steel cable and track and, and machinery that's still, left, that's still there, left over from 100 years ago. Um, but what, what, what remained was a whole new standard because now the standard was the standard of the U.S. Army. And that is what actually moved it into a more equitable situation. And it allowed both sides to save face. I mean, it was like the owners said, well, I'm doing it for the war effort. And the IWW said, well, we're giving it up for the war effort. We're all Americans together. I mean, it, it was a brilliant move. Actually, what the, what's called is nationalizing an industry. Mm. You know, we, we always say, no socialism here. The railroads were nationalized. I mean, it was the beginning of the railroad industry. It was all, all this ownership. The whole backbone of our agricultural system was 
government ownership, which was given to the to the farmers. And uh, that itself, I mean, I kind of find it ironic, you know, that we we just are. We don't do our history. I mean, you know, the Americans are really bad at history. Uh, yesterday is long gone. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carl. Speaking of uh, lumbering and history, uh, you throw a little bit of shade at George Weyerhaeuser um, in this novel. Who is George Weyerhaeuser, and why does this name keep coming up in Deep River? Well, first of all, I, I, I throw the shade at Weyerhaeuser Company. George Weyerhaeuser was a, a timber magnate. I mean, he, he was from the Midwest. He started his, I think he started making money on uh, uh, lumber in Michigan. Uh, and he lived, I think, in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, and he was friends with the railroads uh, and, and personal friends. I mean, they lived next door to each other. And uh, one, of the, one of the big deals was that George Weyerhaeuser, in the, I think maybe 1900, 1902, around that time period, right at the turn of the century, walked next door to one of the big railroad owners, whose name has gone from my head right now. I think he owned the Northern Pacific Railroad. And the Northern Pacific Railroad, because of all these grants, the government granted them a square mile alternating on every side of the tracks that they were planning to build. Well, then, of course, they submitted plans <laughs> for railroad tracks that you know didn't get built, but they own the land, and Weyerhaeuser made a deal for, for a very small amount per acre to buy a whole bunch of this land, and then he moved to the west because the the timber was gone in Michigan. So now you have a corporation, and there were others there: Macmillan, Bloedel, um, who were who were some of the other big ones, uh, uh, Pope and Talbot. Uh, these are big names out there. And Weyerhaeuser just happens to be the biggest name. So whenever anybody want, wanted to talk, eat my characters, or even when I was a kid, if you wanted to talk about big business, Weyerhaeuser was the name because they were the biggest. And that's, that's why they, they come up often in the novel. But they own and still do own massive amounts of land. Uh, that's fine if they manage it well. <laughs> you know, that's an issue. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carl. Um, our time here is coming to an end, and I hate that because uh, we've been talking for a while, but I also feel like we barely touched upon the many, many wonderful things in this novel, and I could talk to you about it forever. Um, I feel like I could write a doctoral thesis on this work, but <laughs> before we go, I do want to ask you about the um, Kalevala. In your afterward, uh, and in the beginning of this podcast, um, you spoke about it, but in your afterward, you say, before there was Finland, there was the Kalevala, and you go on to write... Uh, that it has no overarching narrative structure, and the novel is not a retelling of the Calavella, but rather a tale highly influenced by it. Um, can you please tell us what is the Calavella and how did it influence this work specifically? Calavala. Yeah. Calavala. Um, it's, it's in the 1830s, when Finland was under Russian control, Russia was trying to uh, Russify the Finns. And that is, they were basically trying to, you know, wipe out the Finnish language. And so they started to make it difficult. If you wanted to do any business with the Russian government, if you wanted, you know, you had to do it in Russian. And so they were starting to move toward, uh, you know, just changing the language. And we see that in many, many historical situations. Um, a guy named Elias Lomrot, who was a Swedish-speaking Finn, about 15% of Finns speak Swedish. Uh, was got his, got his degree to be a doctor, and part of that was that the Russian government would assign you to a district that no one wanted to go to, 
And there was a district in the east of Finland called the Kalava district. And La in Finnish means from the place of. Like if, you're, if your last name is Niemela, that means you're from the place of the peninsula. Niemi means peninsula. From, so Kalavala is from the place of the Kalava districts. If you speak Finn, it's pretty simple. Um, while he was there, he began to notice uh, people singing really ancient songs. And I actually was able to witness this once. Uh, there, I used to go to, when I was a tiny, when I was a little kid, my grandparents took me to Suomi Hall, which is a Finnish brotherhood organization in Astoria. And I once saw some really old guys. They would link arms, and they would look at each other right in the, right in the eye. And you ha- didn't, and you, you weren't sure they were doing a duet or was it, it was a contest. You weren't sure. I mean, it was that fierce. And he witnessed that, and what they, but he began to collect the songs, and he began to understand that they had the same characters. These songs were different songs, but the same characters, Lemminkainen, this, this sort of wild minstrel, and, and uh, Jukkahainen, who was a sort of hothead. And, and, uh, no, Lemminkainen was a hothead. Jukkahainen was the, was the wild minstrel, and, and uh, the old, old Vainamoinen. And all these characters uh, are very, uh, keep reappearing. And modern scholars think they probably were uh, echoes of a shamanic past, very powerful shamanic figures, um, because the Finns don't have the Norse pantheon. They're not Indo-Europeans. Uh, the, you know, you can you can trace, uh, you know, Odin to Zeus to Jupiter because they actually all came from the original Indo-European tribe. The Finns are different. They have a very different language, and their spirituality is much more like Native American. It's shamanic. It's uh, uh, you know wind spirits and tree spirits and that sort of thing. So these songs came were uh, came about long before Christianity showed up. And in these far districts, it still remained. Of course, the churches were trying to you know stomp out that superstition. Um, Lonrock collected it, and what happened is it because it came at a time when Finland was suffering under Russia. It became a sort of a touchstone for Finnish independence. Uh, people began naming their children after the characters in the Kalevala, and they began using it as a sort of a, an example of truly Finnish literature. Um, Sibelius uh, writes <clears throat> writes a lot of music that's based on stories from the Kalevala, <clears throat> but as I said in the in the afterward, it's there's no structure to it. My original idea was, oh, I'll just retell the story of the Kalevala, but uh, can't do it, can't translate it. So I had to make up my own story. And, but the characters, all my characters have names that reflect, I mean, for example, Ilmeri is, reflects Ilmerinen, who was a magic smith. And he forged a, 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 the magic Sampo. And the Sampo was this mill that ground out prosperity, sort of like the cornucopia. And so Ilmeri starts a business called Sampo Manufacturing, and he is a blacksmith. And so that's what I mean when the Kalevala highly influences my choice of characters. And they all, they all reach back. Aino is a major character in the Kalevala. It means the only one. And one of her brothers tries to basically sell her as a bride to another shaman, and she refuses. And, you know, so that's Aino, you know. Um, so it, it's a, you don't need to know anything about the Kalevala to read the novel. It's just the same with Matterhorn. It was all about the Parseval myth, but very few people, you know, actually cotton to it. That's fine. I'm playing with it. It's my deal, you know. And, uh, you know, if you're a Ph.D. student, you can have fun with it, too. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Carl. Listeners, I've been speaking with Carl Marlantis, author of Deep River, published by our friends at Atlantic Monthly Press. If there is one novel that I can suggest you purchase a signed copy of at Quail Ridge Books and hunker down with as we approach the fall, Deep River by Carl Marlantis would be the one. Carl, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Once again, I would like to thank Carl Marlantis for joining me. Signed copies of Deep River can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN in the promo code space. That's B-O-O-K-I-N to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support Quail Ridge Books in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Bookin'.